Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 30th of July. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, we're very excited to be joined on this week's episode by the great historian, economist, and chronicler of our times, Adam Tooth, to discuss his recent New Statesman cover essay on China. But before we do, Emily, Tell me what you've been paying attention to in the last week. I have been watching the games, the Olympic games. As sadly, I'm still not allowed to live my truth as a sports commentator. I will instead stick to analyzing the geopolitics of it. First of all, as predicted, COVID cases are indeed at an all-time high in Japan. And secondly, interestingly, the Russian team, which is banned from competing as Russia because of their massive doping scandal from a few years back, they're not they're no longer competing just as individual athletes. They're competing as the quote, Russian Olympic Committee, end quote, with like Russian colors, you know, Tchaikovsky plays when they win. It's it's the Russian team in everything but name. And I just wanted to flag that our colleague and sometime co-host of this podcast, Ido Vok, has a a fun and interesting piece kind of like looking at, at why there's a Russian team in all but name at the Olympics, even though there isn't supposed to be a Russian team. And what about you, Jeremy? What have you been watching? I was interested and alarmed to see that uh, Tunisia's president, Kais Saeed, who was elected in 2019, sacked the country's prime minister and suspended its parliament after protests last Sunday. And this comes against a background of a terrible handling of the COVID-19 crisis in the country. And of course, very close to that 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring, which of course had its most albeit still qualified, a significant success in Tunisia. And it begs some big questions about the state of democracy in the country. Those who support the president say that he's been trying to put it back on track after its recent difficulties. Others say that he's staging a coup. And I think it just reminds us how even this most tentatively optimistic of stories to come out of the Arab Spring is incredibly fragile. And it's a story that I'll be continuing to watch with interest. Well, our guest this week is Adam Tews, the Shelby Colm Davis Chair of History of Columbia University, who's also Director of the European Institute there. Adam writes, as many people will know, widely on history, economics, and global politics. And he's written a fantastic essay for The New Statesman, which was our cover feature last week, on China, looking at the process of Chinese modernization and the role of the Chinese Communist Party in it. And he's also written a book called Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy, which is coming out on September the 7th. So very much looking forward to that. Adam, thanks very much for joining us. A pleasure to be here. So Adam, on the piece that you wrote for us, which was a really interesting look at sort of how China reached the place it is now and the role of the Chinese Communist Party in that, one of the things that really struck me was that many of us are used to the idea that Chinese modernization and opening up began with Deng Xiaoping you know, after Mao and, and, and that process of opening up the Chinese economy. And I think one of the, one of the fascinating things there is that you, you complicate that timeline and you talk about ways in which Chinese modernization started much earlier. You talk about how even Sun Yat-sen had sort of visions that, that, that prefigured the rollout of the Chinese high-speed rail network. You talk about how even Mao's China had a sort of Belt and Road initiative. You talk about how it was the older revolutionary generation that helped 
prevent China from going through shock therapy in the 1990s. And right up to the present, you, you also discuss how relations between China and the US were deteriorating even before Xi Jinping came to power in 2012. And I just would invite you to sort of start by, 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 by talking to us about how you see the, that timeline of China's process of modernization. It's a long ongoing story, isn't it, rather than a, than a sort of simple case of one moment where everything changed. Yes, I think the, the, the Deng Xiaoping starting point is very conventional, as you say, but, but it's also in some sense, you know, highly misleading because it sets China's you know, last half century of opening up against a unique low point, if you like, of isolation of China, arguably in its modern history. I mean, China in the early 70s was was friendless, right? I mean, its allies were North Korea, if they were lucky, and, and Pol Pot in Cambodia. You know, they were at odds with the Soviets, they were at odds with the Vietnamese, they were at odds with the Indians, and they didn't really have diplomatic relations with the United States, even though diplomatic talks had begun. And in terms of their internal politics, this was, after all, the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution and a gigantic upheaval, particularly in the educated class of China, with the population of university students falling from close to a million in the early 60s to a sort of derisory total of about 50,000 people still in university in the late 1960s. So the points of contact are absolutely minimal at that point, but it's entirely unrepresentative of China's modern history. Right? China, in a sense, has generally speaking, always been integrated with the world. How could it not be? And in a sense, China's relations with the world are defining of the state of the world, just, just given China's bulk, its population size, the sophistication of its economy and its culture the way in which China is articulated with the world is definitional of the state of the world at that given moment. And it has ebbed and flowed, and it has been a violent history much of the time, because as it were, the quote unquote opening up of China in the 19th century is of course being pursued by imperialist powers from the outside. And the project of Chinese nationalism, as is true of the projects of nationalisms in many of the struggling empires of the late 19th century, think of the Ottomans with the Young Turks, The project of of Chinese nationalism is to not, as it were, close China off in some way, but to open it, but on China's terms, so as to insist that, you know, the terms being set by the imperial European powers, the United States and Japan, all of which are slightly distinct from each other, but none of them are acceptable to any kind of strong notion of Chinese sovereignty. And that is a project which goes back to the reforming generations of the late imperial period, and is then taken up by the nationalists, the KMT, the Kuomintang, and is then pursued even in the era of warlordism by the more adventurous modernizing warlords. The people who are characterized as warlords subsequently are often at the time think of themselves as military modernizers pursuing a nationalist project. In the 50s and 60s then, you know, China is an outgoing revolutionary power One of the really surprising data sets that has emerged recently is a compilation showing the extent of foreign lending by China in the high point of revolutionary Maoism, where you see very considerable outflows of funds, obviously on a much smaller scale, because China is a much poorer country, to the colonial, post-colonial, the world of, of national liberation struggles, where China is already a big player. I recently had the privilege of visiting Tanzania, and and if you go to their national museum you see celebrations of collaborations between Tanzanian nationalist politicians and Chinese engineers in the construction of uh, Tanzania's railway system. So it's not new, and we should be careful not to use a period of maximum isolation in China as our starting point. You know, when I think about some of the contemporary Russia analysis, there's this tendency to sort of be like, well, you know, it's, it's the Russian desire to have a strong leader and it goes back to the Tsar and then to Stalin. So I, I guess in your, in your writing, how do you balance what you're describing, which is like the actual historical context that brought China to where it was today um, with the need not to kind of fall back on like, you know, this is China's, this, this, these kind of tropes that I think sometimes when we begin the story earlier, pundits can can tend to use? How do you, how do you balance the, the need to start the story early with the need to refuse, I, I guess, uh, stereotypes and tropes, if that makes sense? I, I think that's an absolutely great, great question. And, and it is one of the shortcuts, right? Now, if you're going to tell a long story in a limited number of words, you need a hook. And so, you know, one hook is going to be continuity. And it's not necessarily a bad way of thinking about the world. You know, if you've, 
if you've got if you've got to formulate a sort of organizing idea, the thing you need to know about the Russians is they don't share our history. I think would be a would be a better way of formulating it rather than immediately jumping to some presumptuous claim that we know what their history is. But anyway, for starters, it's clearly not ours. And then I I actually very much you know for me it's a project almost to resist those kind of logics. The, the consequence of that though is that often you have to, as it were, tell stories which are stories of stops and starts, not necessarily repeating patterns, but as it were, leaps forward followed by setbacks, two steps forward, one step back type stories. And I learned this, you know, the hard way. I mean, I came up as a German historian first and foremost, and obviously German history is one of those histories which is overshadowed by that kind of simplistic rhetorical move. Well, you know, like the Russians, the Germans need a strong hand. And so Hitler is explained by Bismarck. Ardenauer is explained by Hitler, is explained by Bismarck, who's explained by Frederick the Great, who's explained by Martin Luther, or some sort of sequence of, you know, figures like that. And that's a terrible way of writing German history. And furthermore, it's not just a terrible way of writing German history. It's a way of writing German history, which has a politics. And generally speaking, that politics is pretty terrible, too. Because it's fixed, because it's rigid, because it says we've got to do X because we are the way we are. And so therefore, we've got to do that. There are literally posters produced by the Nazi party, which produce literally that sequence of obviously not Conrad Adenauer, but Hitler, Bismarck, Frederick the Great, Martin Luther. You know, these people have absolutely nothing to do with each other. They couldn't have been more different from one another. But a subsequent appropriation of them sandwiches them together. And one should be attentive, of course, also to the you know, what we think of as the positive versions of this. I mean, I live in the United States right now and, and have, you know, the great good fortune of working at a, a wonderful American university. But part of one of the things you need to learn to live with here is the, the, the exceptionalist story that runs the other way. In other words, the endless recurrence back to the founders, the endless summoning of the authentically American, the true American project, which is, as we all know, ultimately about freedom, right? and the pursuit of happiness, for instance. So yes, I think one of the projects, to my mind at least, of a critical, enlightening, a sort of history writing that moves us forward in thinking about the present is to destabilize and unpick those kind of narratives. That's a choice. It's not the only thing you can do with history. And there are people in the profession who think that history has a different role and that it indeed is to remind us of deep continuities and so on. I'm, I'm not just not very sympathetic to that. Talking about chains of historical causality, it would be remiss of me not to ask you, as a historian joining us on, on, on the episode this week, what you think of this idea of a Thucydides trap. And you talk about it in your, in your, your essay, you mention it. I think it's safe to say that you have some scepticism about the idea. Do you think it's totally bogus to use such historical parallels, though? Or do you think they can be valuable? Particularly in terms of China, which is this, this, this vast civilizational state stretching back far, far, far longer than, than, than any Western states, and that people naturally want to sort of fit into some sort of taxonomy. Do, do, do you think we're always on a hiding to nothing trying to find parallels like that? Well, I mean, I think we should just acknowledge we can't help doing it. Like, let's not fight this impulse. We've got this impulse, but let's somehow train this impulse and make it more intelligent. Because we want to understand the world, so we need some sort of schemas. So it's perfectly compelling to say to yourself, right, you've got an incumbent, they're being challenged, and they can see that they're about to be challenged by a rival. One could imagine all sorts of bad scenarios that follow from that. And hey, yes, there's a very influential Greek writer who wrote about this to do with Athens and Sparta, you know, millennia ago. And he is part of the Western canon taught, you know, in universities and in education to the Western elite ever since, or at least in the last thousand years. I taught for a while at Yale, where it was kind of literally part of the canon being taught there. And so, yeah, this is a thought we can't very well resist. I would, I would have two sort of counters or three counters, which is, you know, one, what happens when the actors in the supposed Thucydides trap know they're in a Thucydides trap? So, you know, are not just simply dumb actors acting out the Greek drama, but are cognizant of the scenario. And that's, we know the case right now. In fact, Xi Jinping has commented publicly on the prevalence of Thucydides trap type thinking. Secondly, if we examine our own Western limited history, does it look like this is a necessary development? And of course, there are moments that can be construed like that. Classically, for instance, people construe the struggle between Imperial Germany and Imperial Britain before 1914 that way. 
It's not actually a terribly good explanation for why war broke out in 1914, which is much better explained by the Thucydides trap operating between Imperial Germany and Imperial Russia at the time. And there, I think an arms race logic makes perfect sense. The German military thought there was a strategic window of opportunity. They were going to be overtaken by Tsarist Russia in due course, so better to strike now rather than later. So yes, okay, you could say that's a moment. But then look at the aftermath of the war, as I did in in my book Deluge. And it's clear there that the British elite, looking at their obvious and inevitable, as they saw it, supersession by the United States, said, look, we could fight this or we could not fight this. And probably better not to fight it. Like you can't win, ally yourself with the Americans and become their, you know, as we know, all the way down to the present day being debated literally this morning, you know, in relation to the reported remarks by Defence Secretary Austin as he, when he was in London recently, like America's privileged partner in some sort of strategic deal. That is also an answer to the Thucydides trap. And then my third thought would be, hang on. Isn't this entire intellectual exercise hubristic? Like, what are our examples in the West? Sparta and Athens, for crying out loud, like two microscopic Greek city-states whose influence is blown out of proportion by their influence on Western culture. Imperial Germany and Imperial Britain, okay. And then we're talking about China. It's a sixth of humanity, right? Which is changing its position from one of utterly historically anomalous subordination to one of essentially, in some senses, just a sort of natural position of hegemony within its immediate region. Why would we Why would we try and understand that world historic shift in terms of this little Western civilization parlor game that we've been playing previously? That would be my third take, would be, okay, fine, Thucydides trap where it's appropriate, but does it really work as a model for understanding the sort of transition we're going through now? I think one of the issues with the, the term Thucydides trap is that it is precisely the problematic example of Imperial Germany and Britain that most people now think of when it's when it's invoked. I, don't, I, I, I think that's the example that most people now see the parallel as pointing to, not Athens and Sparta, but but this, this one example. I mean, I know, I know it came out of this, this this study by Graham Allison and his his students at Harvard. I think they they studied what was it, fourteen or sixteen, something like that, historical example. Well, they do. You've got to understand the context for that. that. That's part of this Western Sea of Grand Strategy tradition on the East Coast between Harvard and Yale, principally with Neil Ferguson Act as an outrider at Stanford, and they definitely are in the project of rehabilitating rehabilitating a kind of Western Civ inspired thinking about grand strategy. One of the other ironies, which I bring, I mention in the piece for you folks about applying it to China is it's as though this was a novel thing happening to China, whereas there is actually quite a Thucydides trap moment in China's history already, which ended extremely violently in relation to Japan. You know, if there's a country which finds itself in a Thucydides trap type situation in relation to China, for heaven's sake, it's not the United States. I mean, what has America actually got at stake? Japan has everything at stake. I mean, think about Japan's strategic situation in the early 20th century. Its neighbors are Imperial Russia in crisis, Imperial China in crisis, and utterly enigmatic United States that no one, even the Americans themselves, can't figure out their own position in the world. And you are a highly organized, tightly knit Japanese elite trying to figure out what your strategy is going to be in relation to all of this. One of the things you do need to seriously worry about is the consolidation of a powerful nation state on the mainland of East Asia, in other words, in China, on your doorstep. And they strike preemptively against that. I don't think there's any question that that's a key element in the thinking of the Imperial Japanese army in China in the 20s and 30s, in Manchuria is where they're in place, beyond the wall in the northeast, that they, as it were, need to strike preemptively to prevent the emergence of a state which will evidently dominate the region when it does consolidate. We begin your... Excellent article with rightly noting that this month marked the centenary of the Chinese Communist Party. As you say, there are moments under the Chinese Communist Party that are somewhat ahistorical or, or, or not ahistorical, but unusual in China's broader history. I guess what leads them into that ahistorical moment and what gets them back on, on modernizing track to the point that we're at today? So the, the Chinese Communist Party has to be understood as emerging out of the maelstrom of Chinese nationalist revolutionary liberation politics of the early 20th century. And it's a fairly classical product of the sorts of hybridizations and syntheses that we see at that moment. So Chinese nationalism is one, 
Chinese Marxism is another. It's a creative adaptation of the Marxist-Leninist canon mediated to them by way of the Soviet Union. And then by, you know, by Mao's genius translated into a, a strategy for a deeply impoverished peasant society. And that allows them to, as it were, drive a project of modernization up to a point. But one of the fascinating things about Maoist Marxism is that it is internally divided. I mean, you can formulate this in lots of different ways, but I think there's no way of escaping this basic tension between one wing of Chinese Marxism being true to the Soviet example. In other words, this is a project of national construction through state power, through the construction of urbanized, industrialized society and agricultural collectivization. This is, as it were, the one wing of the movement, which is very powerful at times and catapults China into a much higher level of development, not a higher standard of living, but a higher level of development already by the 1970s, despite the convulsions of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Life expectancy is going up. Health provision is extended to parts of China it had never extended to before. Education is widening. So that is one project. And then there is another wing of Maoism, which is, in a sense, the bit which is harder, I think, for us now at a distance of more than half a century to grasp, which is this revolutionary refusal of hierarchy and bureaucracy and the identification of an insurgent revolutionary impulse with the peasantry coming out of the Revolutionary War, the Civil War. And that, as it were, kicking against, continuously destabilizing the much more familiar model of modernization, which, after all, fares at creates a fairly smooth segue between that kind of Soviet industrialization and the sort of thing we've seen in China since the 1980s. And it's that revolutionary element which twice at least destabilizes Chinese development in the 60s and 70s, so much so that, you know, the way I formulated it in the piece is to say they, they had to rehabilitate the very idea of economic development in the late 70s. Because if you read the Cultural Revolutionary Project, um, it's not about that, right? It really just doesn't prioritize economic growth. It's it's almost it's quite difficult for us to wrap our heads around because we are indeed so wedded to that, and that is the element of the Soviet project, which, which in many ways we find most easy to relate to. Is they were they were into growthmanship too. They were into boosting GDP. They were into expanding material productivity. And one of the things that Deng has to do is, as it were summon China back into that mode of historical development um, by way of rehabilitating the forces of production as such. I mean, all of this, of course, takes place in their minds, I think, not just in their rhetoric, through the conceptual frameworks of of, of Marxism. And so the move they're performing is, as it were, to recenter the development of the forces of production, which is the ideological opening then, the incredible growth drive that we've seen since the, the 1980s which is then available for reappropriation by you know, what they call 21st century Marxism under, under Xi's leadership in the last decade, which, as it were, morphs this into a really sprawling notion of, of governance. You know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite like what happened to neoliberalism in the West, in a sense, is that it's become, as it were, a doctrine of control, of risk management, so the CCP has proved capable of like constantly modifying its ideological DNA in ways which are, you know, well, can't help but being impressed by, I think. And it is, in that way, the only party in the world, serious large party, and it is the largest political force in the world, bar none, that is still engaged in that kind of project. It strikes me listening to you that one of, one of the strongest threads of continuity to this story is this open question as to how much the CCP is, how, precisely how much the CCP is beholden to the example and experience of the Soviet project. You know, right from the very start, you know, when, when the party was founded in, I think it was supposedly in an empty boarding school in Shanghai, there was a supposedly, is it Henk Snivliet, a, 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 a Dutch uh, Comintern agent sent by Lenin was there at the foundation to be part of it alongside the 13 or so Chinese communists. And, you know, you, you can you can you can take that all the way forward to the modern day and, and the way that debates about how to understand the fall of the Soviet Union influence Xi's thinking and that of his circle. You know, he obviously came out of a the more hardline view, which was that Gorbachev's great failure, you know, was to was to let the the link between party and military 
decline and, and not to crack down more firmly. Looking ahead, I mean, where does the sort of the long shadow of the Soviet Union take China in the long term? And, and you know, do you think it can free itself from that 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 ongoing debate about 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 whether whether or not it's beholden to the Soviet experience? One of the interesting things for me of looking at the current moment through the lens of as best I can, obviously, with, 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 with all due modesty, through the lens of, of Chinese history and the CCP, is precisely that it repositions the Russian Revolution, if not at the heart of the story, then at least as a crucial part of the story of modernity, right? Because in the West right now, there is a sense, I think, that that's just old history that's essentially irrelevant. It's, you know, it's no more relevant, perhaps, as a force than the British Empire, right? The British Empire is a sort of it produces a field of ruins, it produces a legacy of shame, of politicised identities, but it's not an active force, perhaps. And I think that's the sort of zone to which the Soviet experiment has been relegated in our thinking about history. And for the, for the, for the Chinese regime, that doesn't make any sense. Of course, they know the Soviet story ends badly, but they intend not to make the same mistakes but the Soviet experience is generative, fundamental, essential to their understanding of history all the way down to the present day. And in material ways, right? I mean, they recognize the Russians now as the, you know, the legitimate heirs to that, that, that history. And in, in 2015, the Russians and the Chinese celebrated, commemorated the end of World War II together. And none, none, no one in the West showed up, like, like, but perhaps fittingly, the two countries that actually paid overwhelmingly the largest bud price celebrated it together and decided, right, that's our history. We will commemorate that in our own way. You folks can go hang if you want to go and do D-Day celebrations with the Germans. Fair enough. But like, you know, our version of these events is rather different. And this goes all the way through to the material legacies. Like when the Chinese try and do ultra sophisticated jet fighters today, they still can't make the very, very high powered jet engines themselves and the technology has to come from where well you're clearly not going to get it from the west so they get it from the ukraine or they were getting it from the ukraine until the americans decided to sanction the producers in the ukraine and where does that jet engine factory come from in the you know unlikely locale of the ukraine well it's a legacy of the soviet military industrial complex working its way all the way down into the 21st century so it has very concrete implications for china's ability to mobilize a serious military industrial complex independent of the broader ambit of American and Western influence, right? And that's true also going forward with regards to fossil fuels. One of the one of the obvious nightmare scenarios for the next decades is that China and Russia are forced together into some sort of self-sustaining anti-Western quote unquote fossil fuel powered block for which they have the resources and the manpower and the technology and it would be a disaster for the planet. That is, as it were, I think, another way in which the, the relationship lasts and continues to sustain China. You know, liberals in the West like to say they're very, the Chinese are bad at making allies, which is true up to a point, except if you factor in, well, Pakistan, for instance, but far more significantly Russia. Actually, I wanted to ask um, Emily whether you want to come in on this, because it brings us quite nicely to that question of whether some sort of alliance of convenience between Putin's Russia and Xi's China is, is realistic. And, and, you know, you hear arguments on both sides of this this debate. What What's the view from Washington? I mean, they are realigned, right? So it's not whether or not it's realistic, it's happening now. Now, you can say, you know, it's, it's always interesting to have this conversation in India or with Indian diplomats and defense officials, because their line is, you know, obviously, they want to work more closely with the US, we want them to work more, we want to work more closely with India. Um, but India and Russia have this historic partnership. And when you say, well, the Russians kind of you know, they're ditching you for the Chinese, they say, and why have they, why have they done that? <laughs> you know, it's because you sanctioned them after 2014 and after 2016. Now, as an American, it's always very interesting where where one begins the story, right? Because I, I, I my internal response is always kind of like, we didn't annex Crimea, you know, like, wh- why does the story begin there? But I think, yeah, I think, I think that, that Russia and China are aligned. They are working together, whether or not that lasts, right, or whether who gets to be the main player in Central Asia ends up being a sticking point in the relationship, or whether, you know, India can coax Russia back away from China a bit, that's still to be seen. I I think to say, like, are we seeing a a realignment between the two kind of ignores the past past few years. But what do you think, Adam? Well, I mean, I agree. The question is where you start that story, right? And I mean, for me, the Ukraine story starts with 
with the incredibly ill-advised invitation by the outgoing Bush administration mm. to Ukraine and Georgia to join NATO, done casually, apparently causing huge eruptions within the US administration itself and alienating both Berlin and Paris. And it's a it's a poison chalice. It's an absolutely disastrous you know, conclusion to a disastrous presidency from the point of view of American power in the world. And you could look at the EU. Exactly. I mean, like I laid it, I mean, that I laid out my vision of that in crash. I mean, the EU's just fumbling, grotesquely incompetent and irresponsible geopolitics in the region where it's like a drunken pub crawl where you have, you know, you have the Germans and the French unwilling to basically in any way back a doubling down commitment mm -hmm. to, you know, bringing Ukraine in. You have Brussels saying, oh, don't look at us. We don't do geopolitics. And I've literally had representatives of the of the Brussels civil service say that to my face. And then you'll have diplomats from Sweden or the Baltic states buttonhole you and say, we do geopolitics and we do our geopolitics by way of Brussels. And if the useful idiots in Brussels go on denying it, that doesn't hurt us. We still pursue our policy. Right. So it's and and Ukraine is caught in that, and Russia is just not willing to play along with that kind of thing. I think it might be it might be true to say that everyone does geopolitics. It's just some people are more aware of that. Some people are more aware of that fact than others. The people you should genuinely not trust are the people who come in, you know, smoothly denying they don't. On on the China Russia relationship, I would insist that it's much more than a relationship of convenience. Again, I think that's a kind of like, you know, we should really check our liberal prejudices here. I mean, China and Russia have to have a relationship. They have a gigantic land mm -hmm. border. <laughs> you know, it's like it's the it's convenient or not. They they have a relationship. Like if they they really need to sort that out, and obviously from their point of view, it makes sense that that for that to be as profitable and mutually supportive as possible, right? And their entire histories are interwoven. I mean, in a much more active way, really, you could argue. I mean, after all, wars are fought along that boundary. You know, it's not that there hasn't been a great game played out on India's northern frontier with Russia, but the, the Chinese-Russian relationship, I would argue, is much more essential to both parties. So, yes, that's emerged. And, and, and exactly as you say, I mean, it's, it's live. It's a fact. It's no longer disputable. And we make it we make it more and more likely by the way in which we act towards both of those parties. I wanted to pick up on something you said about the threat of a world in which China and Russia just say, all right, we're going to have fossil fuel cooperation. And that's going to be bad for everyone, but but we're in this position because there are various schools of thought on China in Washington, and one of them is we need to play we need to play nicely with China because of climate change. Um, I don't necessarily, I actually, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I do see that this could very easily end up being we don't actually end up doing much of anything on climate change. Or anything else, right? So, so we sort of say, like, well, we're going to cooperate with China over climate change, and then neither the United States or China actually end up tackling the problem with the kind of urgency or scale that we need to. That coupling is, I absolutely agree that it's it's really it's a tricky thing to think through, and and I'm certainly one of the people who, because they favour detente with China and care anxiously and seriously about the climate problem, are tempted by that thought. But I think it's worth sort of trying to sift our ideas a little bit here. On the national, shall we say, climate policy, I think my take would be, look, there is no country in the world that more urgently needs to address the climate problem and have it addressed as a global issue than China. I mean, perhaps India needs it even more because of the climate, you know, the, the implications of extreme heat surges in India, which are just apocalyptic. But China is balancing on a knife edge ecologically. And a long-lived authoritarian regime that intends to have a second century and to write a second century of Chinese Communist Party history, you would think would internalize the climate problem pretty seriously. Furthermore, they account for 28% of global emissions. So there is no, there is no solution other than with China. And, and Xi, after all, has said, and when he says these sorts of things publicly, it does matter because it binds the entire party in significant ways that they are going to decarbonize. So I would, as it were, I don't think there's much point in Americans who care about climate change or Europeans who care about climate change engaging in kind of imaginary deals with China in which somehow we get them to be more serious about their you know, carbon pricing system, which, by the way, in its framework form, extends only to China's power stations and by doing so covers more emissions than the entire United States. Now, it isn't operating yet. They haven't actually tweaked it. So it actually raises prices. But that gives you an idea of the scale 
a potential action. When the Chinese get their ET system, ETS system rolling, it's like taking a US-sized piece out of the global emissions puzzle. So that's a huge deal, but I think it's ultimately for the Chinese to do it, and they have every reason to do it. And frankly, I would treat them as a far more credible actor in the climate space than the United States, where if and when the GOP reconquers the House next year, all debate about legislative climate action in America ceases, and we'll see a huge rollback through the courts of any regulation the Biden administration right. attempts. And, and who knows if we'll still be in Paris in 2025, you know. Exactly. So who... Where I think the need for cooperation with the West and China over climate arises is not so much in aligning our respective domestic climate policies, but in corralling and hustling the rest of the world towards agreeing with the longer term rationale that we think is good for everyone. And and after all, certainly as far as the US and EU are concerned, we're not going to be the principal and immediate and first victims of this change. We have a huge, deeply vested interest in climate stabilization, but bigger EM all around the planet have an even bigger interest. And that's where I really see, you know, the need for cooperation. And as it were, the easy bits of that are things like climate finance, cleaning up one belt, one road, which the Chinese appear to be actually doing. I don't know whether you saw the the report, but this is the first six month period literally just passed in which One Belt, One Road has not funded a single coal-fired project. And we in the West need to double down and do our own version, you know, this B3W, Build Back Better World thing they touted in Cornwall, is the box within which such a policy from the West could be delivered. It just, I, I just don't know whether we can take it at all seriously, but that's one way to move in. And then when you get to the really tough pieces of the geopolitical puzzle, it's very difficult for me to see any realistic strategy of cornering Russia and driving it towards decarbonization that doesn't involve some sort of cooperation between China and the EU and the US. And I really, frankly, have no idea how that plays out. But I find it very difficult to imagine any scenario in which it does, unless they, they're they the block, the carbon club, large enough, I think, to ex- actually exercise some sway over Russia. Because otherwise, the nightmare presumably is that, say, a Turkey or a you know large, rapidly growing EM like that essentially deepens its fossil fuel connections with Russia to the point in which the two of them become essentially a hard nut. Plus, of course, they have the second most significant nuclear arsenal in the world under their control. So they're very, you know, there's no real effective mechanism of of, of heavy duty sanctions. We'll come on to the question of green finance very shortly. But I have to ask you one last question on this, which is, do you think that the West will need to make or would need to make geopolitical concessions on non-climate issues, for example, human rights, to elicit the necessary degree of cooperation from China? I don't know. And what I think we've discovered is it's, it's fundamentally up to Beijing, right? The, this, I think, has been the shock of the last six months, because, you know, there was, on the part of the Europeans, at least Europe under von der Leyen, Merkel, Macron, the idea that, say, with the uh, Comprehensive Investment Agreement, you could, you could silo policy areas. So you would cooperate on investment, and then the Chinese would understand that European parliaments, NGOs, other agencies quite reasonably want to, you know, protest Hong Kong, Xinjiang because of the atrocities being committed there and the, uh, the the ghastly repression in Hong Kong. And Beijing has to understand that this is the way our system functions. It's pluralist. It's it's open. And if they want to do business with us, they are going to have to take the rough with the smooth. And after all, the Western sanctions were mid-level officials at most. And if Beijing had wanted to ride this out, they would just simply have said, oh, well, silly Western nonsense, mid-level officials, we move on because we're self-confident in our assessment of what we're doing. We really don't feel we want to apologize about anything, but you know, these are people we want to do business with. So we have to accept at least that those terms. And they appear to want to do business with us. And though the Biden administration didn't start out that way, it was striking the way you saw carry on climate actually moving towards a siloing model too in which he literally was saying, you know, climate's a whole different arena. Don't listen to the hawkish people in the Pentagon or National Security Council. Just focus on me. I'm looking to talking to you now. We want to work on climate, don't we? And I just don't know how far Beijing is actually willing to play along with that. And then there are a series of questions about, you know, 
Is Beijing just naive? Does it not understand that when you sanction the European Parliament, you blow everything up? Or are they driven by their own nationalist demons and having unleashed the, you know, the genie of wolf warrior diplomacy, they can't get it back in the box? Or the bleakest interpretation, which is the Chinese actually think that history is now running entirely their way. They think we're in terminal decline and can see, don't see no reason to make any compromises with us at all. And so they're just going to wait us out, basically. Meanwhile, trying to lure as much Western capital as possible. That was the theory until very recently. And then, of course, we've seen what's happened in financial markets in recent weeks. And from what one reads, there's clearly a debate within Chinese elite circles about whether the West is in terminal decline or whether it's you know, a genuine challenge. I think we're in a, we, I mean, you know, as a historian, like this is a moment where one has to say, you know, there might be a very high degree of openness, there's a very high, de- high degree of contingency in the moment, right? And and that is the drama of our current situation is that we're living through that with, you know, policy debates going on, as as Emily's saying, in, in DC, in Europe, in Beijing as well. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Coming soon to the World Review podcast, we have a special mini-series on the German election, which I will be hosting from here in Berlin, along with friends and guests. Do tune in. It will be in your normal World Review feed starting next Tuesday, the 3rd of August. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that brings us to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. This question comes to us from Alex from New York. What kind of dynamism are we seeing in green slash infrastructure finance around the world? And does this show neoliberalism is being transcended or simply adapting? Hi, Alex. I, I, saw, I saw the question on Twitter. It's a, it's a great question. And it's one of those questions which I don't think has a simple answer because it's part of the conversation at the current moment. A lot of people have... Yeah, well, the future of the planet, their expectations of the future of the planet and trillions of dollars hanging on this question of whether or not capital can organize itself so as to address the long run problem of deep energy transformation and decarbonization. I mean, if we back out, if we back up, that's the question that's lurking in the background here, right, is, is capitalism and not just capitalism as a system, but our key decision makers on behalf of capital, literally the men and women who make decisions about the allocations of trillions and dollars in funds like BlackRock, capable of internalizing the challenge of climate change to the point at which they say, you know what, it's in the interests of our stakeholders, our shareholders, to whom we have a fiduciary, a legal obligation to guarantee and maximize their long run return. Can we internalize 
those threats to the point at which we can begin, for instance, ending fossil fuel finance in a concerted way and shifting our portfolio towards a huge multi-trillion dollar push over decades into the renewable energy systems that we need. That is that is the question of the moment. And, and, and you know, a huge piece of modern social theory, you know, back to the 19th century, back, you could argue to Adam Smith, you know, hinges on this question of, is there an invisible hand organizing a rational solution here? Is there what Marx and Engels would have called a gesamt capitalist, you know, a total capitalist emerging out of the system? Can some sort of uber imperialism be developed in which national struggles are subordinated to a higher logic of survival? You know, and I and and of course, history gives us mixed lessons and mixed, you know. On this score, there are uh, uh, moments of utter disaster. The moment of imperialism leading up to World War One would be one that we, we talked about earlier, which preoccupied people like Hobson and Lenin. And what was at stake there was precisely the question of whether capitalism's competing, as they understood it, and one can argue with this theory of imperialism, but that's how they understood the problem, as capitalism's competing in the world would never would necessarily lead to a holocaustal war. World War One for them was the end of all of their hope of progress, right? The question was whether it would lead there necessarily, or which is what Lenin thought, which is why therefore you needed a revolution, or whether, as Hobson suggested, there were ways of actually managing this, governing this, such that both domestically you could stifle the pressures for imperialist competition by actually running a Keynesian style of program, and then whether by means of some sort of League of Nations type structure, some sort of super state, you could tame national rivalry. And that's the question that climate forces back on the agenda today. That's what confronts us again today, is this question of whether we can organize this superordinate intelligence within a inherently competitive, rivalrous, profit-driven, power-driven international system. And the astonishing thing is the question is being posed almost daily in the pages of you know the, 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 the business press, the mainstream media. Bloomberg has entire websites devoted to it. And... The question is internal, up to and including, you know, speculations. And, and Alex has actually discussed this, like speculations about, you know, radical monetary theory as opening the gateway to a disinhibited, you know, public-private project. This question, therefore, of neoliberalism's future. I am strongly of the view, and I, and I follow the take of people like Daniela Garbo here, the brilliant, you know, critical macro finance uh, expert that. That we shouldn't see this as a break with neoliberalism. Whatever it is, it's an organic development of that of that project. Of, of certainly, the private green finance model is straight out of the out of the cookbook of financial engineering. And if you look behind the scenes at what B three W Build Back Better World actually adds up to, is the only way they can make the numbers add up is various types of financial engineering. So I would see that as perhaps an extension, a modification, an evolution, but very much very much within the, the flow of that ongoing project of, of governance, which we, for convenience, label as neoliberalism. I could ask about 20 more questions on your, on, on your answer to that alone, but... Come back, come back to me when the book's out, because a, that's a, one of the main stakes of the book. Gladly. Well, all we have time for, unfortunately, on this particular episode of World Review is to look ahead to the next week. And Adam, as our guest, will ask you first, what will you be looking at in world affairs in the next seven days? I, I am tracking the financial markets and the the question of uncoupling or decoupling with China, the, the way in which the Chinese regulators appear to be moving in on some of the key tech businesses in China, actually threatening the emergence of oligarchs there, putting in question many of the relationships between Western investors and their Chinese business partners is really roiling markets right now and is producing an extraordinary welter of comment about the way in which we in the West should understand that relationship. And I think a lot of people have been waiting for this to break. There has been a kind of counterflow of increasing geopolitical escalation and at the same time, increasing and deeper financial engagement. And something's kind of got to give, or at least that was the supposition. And maybe this is the moment at which that breaks. And how about you, Emily? I will be watching what the US does in terms of getting people to get vaccinated. It's clear at this point that just saying get vaccinated is not working. We're beginning to see the introduction of some um, mandates and some more cajoling. So for example, federal employees will now either have to be 
vaccinated or regularly show negative tests. I don't think the US will ever put in something like we saw in France, which is just like a blanket. If you want to go to a bar or a cafe, you better have that proof of vaccination just because it's too federal a system that is, as Adam said at the top of this podcast, is too in love with its own story of freedom. But I do think that we will increasingly see more than just like, you should do it, or I'm angry if you don't do it, because we're still in a public health crisis. And you, Jeremy? I will be interested to see the delivery of 6 million doses of Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which as many listeners will know, is a single dose vaccine against COVID to the African Union, which is due next week. And that may not sound like very many doses for a continent of over a billion, but it will actually increase the number of doses given there by 10%. Only 60 million people there have been vaccinated at all. And I think it's a reminder of how far behind the rich world and even the semi-rich world, um, sub-Saharan Africa is in terms of vaccinating. But also I think it it shines a light on the African Union's own call for the West and for international organizations to make it easier for vaccines to be produced entirely on the African continent rather than having to be shipped in like this. And if listeners are interested in that, um, Ido, our colleague, will have more on our Monday World Review newsletter, which you can sign up to at newsatesfund.com slash world hyphen review. With that, all that is left is for us to say a huge thank you to Adam Tews for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Adam. Pleasure to be here. As ever, we will put the relevant pieces from this episode on the episode page, most notably Adam's brilliant essay on China and its road to modernization under the Communist Party. And that will all be on the episode page at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. As a reminder, if you like this podcast, tell your friends, tell your haters, like, leave a review, subscribe. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next week. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.